The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or Girls Who Code. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 10th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests will include local Citizens Climate Lobby organizers Mark Tabert and Craig Preston, closely tracking the carbon tax in federal infrastructure legislation. In the second segment, Gloria Alvarado, the Executive Director of the Orange County Federation of Labor, takes stock of the late president of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trumka. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My guests are Citizen Climate Lobby organizers, Mark Tabert and Craig Preston. I'm going to introduce them each very briefly since they've both been on the show previously. Mark Tabert is co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby. He's responsible for spawning new chapters around Orange County. He lives in Newport Beach. And Craig Preston, is the California coordinator for the Conservative Caucus of the Citizen Climate Lobby and co-leader of the Orange Coast Citizens Climate Lobby chapter. He comes to us today from Costa Mesa. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Mark Tabert and Craig Preston. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Well, that is Mark and Craig in that order. Well, I understand from the rallying the cries from your legislative analyst, Danny Richter in DC. This iron's never been this hot for Citizens Climate Lobby. Talk about what makes this your big moment at this juncture, both with the House Resolution 2307 and the Senate's Infrastructure Reconciliation Package. I'll just say for the people out there that are just hearing about us for the first time that we've been working for 13 years for one goal, we've been trying to put a price on carbon that's national in scope with a border adjustment so that it influences other countries to follow our lead on carbon pricing. If we do this, we believe we can get to net zero by 2050. We can reduce emissions by 50% by 2030. And this has always been the solution we've been pushing. And now under the reconciliation bill, there's a good chance, according to our sources within the Senate, that they're going to have carbon pricing included in, in this package. And we're excited about that because we've never been this close before. We've been talking about carbon pricing. For more than 13 years, but just in an organized way, right? Well, CCL, I think CCL is 13 years old and maybe 14. I don't know, Craig. Do you know? But the discussion of carbon tax precedes the actual organization. Give yourselves that credit. Yes. That's important. If, you know, there's nothing to compete with what a carbon price can do. Until you put a price on carbon, oil, coal, and gas will always have a market advantage because we as a public are paying for the harm they cause. Fossil fuels kill people, sicken people, and they cause climate change. And now that we understand the harm, we should stop paying for the bill. The oil, coal, and gas companies should be picking up that tab. And under this carbon pricing plan, they'll pay an increasing fee. Every year, the the fee will go up. And the money collected from that fee, which will raise their prices for everything. That for money everything. Will... And I want you to, there's the thing has to have antecedents. It's the manufacturers. Is it also 
public authorities like a utility plant? Every sector there is, correct, Mark and Craig? No, the only people that pay the fee, the only people that pay the tax, the carbon tax, is oil, coal, and gas when it comes out of the ground, out of the mine, or in- It's at the extraction only. Yes, because, you know, there are only 2,000 sources of fossil fuel in this country. Of course, some of them have a lot of locations. Exxon obviously has thousands of locations, but that bill has to be sent only to one company. And every year, Exxon will be taxed, just like we're taxed in our homes for having our garbage hauled away. We don't pour our garbage on the street. We pay a fee and they pick it up. And that's the same principle as uh, as a carbon tax. And the way the people are protected, if you remember the Yellow Jacket fiasco in France, where all the people protested, that's because they put a tax on carbon in France, but they didn't give the money back to people. So who suffered? The people that were poor and middle class, because they're the ones that could feel the increase in their prices for fuel and heating and cooling and lights. But in the United States, in our plan, everybody gets a dividend, and that protects the poor and middle class from rising fossil fuel prices. And Claudia, it's important to understand, we think of our carbon footprint as just our gasoline, our heating and cooling, and our electricity, our lights at home. But the truth is, that's only one third of our carbon footprint as a country. The other two thirds is in stuff we buy. It's the manufacturers, the transportation, delivery of goods to our homes. Everything you touch, when you spend a nickel, you've just burned carbon. And that's what people are missing when they try to figure out what their own carbon footprint is. So, Well, that's why I brought up utilities. They're moving resources around, and that's a carbon footprint. And the yeah, the carbon of, of transportation of goods, of utilities move goods around. See, all those, all those prices will go up. Everything will go up. The cherries that come in from Chile in the wintertime when it's cold up here and warm down there, those prices will go up because they're freighting that stuff in by air, and that cost will increase because airfares will increase. The, the cost of fossil fuel, anywhere fossil fuels burn, is going to feel that price increase. So the extraction, it moves through, it's distributed through all those sectors. So, But you're saying it's Airfares will go up, but how would utilities go up too? The, everything, everything. The energy intensive utility selections, and everybody knows I'm thinking of desalination plants, that the more energy a utility uses, the more the ratepayer is going to be on the hook for. Yes, right. All right. That Okay, well, that clarifies the point I'm trying to get at. And so I'm, I'm glad to have you mention that. So, and I don't know if you have positions on the desalination plants here, or it's all about lobbying for getting the carbon tax in, instituted. That's all, that's what your whole work is about. Yeah, we really don't, you know, we, we have sympathy. I mean, different people in our organization are very anti-Poseidon, for instance. But as an organization, we don't get involved with other things. We're but, single focused. Yes, exactly. And that's what is a very potent proposition that you bring in the whole political setting. So now Senator Whitehouse has had a Save Our Future Act. Are there elements of that that are being combined in any of the infrastructure packages that work that align with them so that you've got the benefit of all of these kinds of goals and the sort of institution building? I don't think Craig and I can answer that question specifically because I don't think anybody knows outside of the Senate exactly 
what this thing is going to look like. It's still lots of moving parts. Okay, that's we're all getting that impression, but it's good to ask. Claudia, let me say this about Senator Whitehouse. He spoke a week ago Thursday on a fireside chat, and he sounds extremely optimistic. And I mean extremely optimistic. That More than ever. Carbon pricing will be part of the Biden package when, when it comes out. So Senator Whitehouse's his effusive delivery is something more than you've ever heard from him, just to, so you know that these are special times, these are special opportunities. By far, it's more, it's, we've never had any, we've never been like we are right now. We've never been in a situation like this. I mean, you know, we have a bill in Congress that we've talked about before, that's the oh, Inno- yes. Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. That currently has 80 sponsors. I know White House likes our bill because it covers all the bases, just like his stuff. You know, the difference between White House, his bill in the Senate, that he comes across so, so strong for the unions and for the oil industry, and I'm forgetting somebody else. He speaks with real love in his heart for the oil industry, for the people that have given their lives to producing oil, coal, and gas and, and raise our economy to where it is today. And now that we need to switch, he's gonna make sure that they get a just deal. His example was, we're not gonna send them to junior college to learn how to type. We're gonna give them a real, a way to exit in a profit, in an honorable manner. He's, and he does the same- They're gonna learn how to code, not type. He does the same thing with justice groups. He understands how people suffer currently. They live around refineries. They live near the oil wells that are in their backyards in, in the centers, you know, in LA here, for example. And I know that his bill tried to deal with that, and I'm sure it's going to be part of the Senate package if it happens. And we think it will. You mean you're talking about like the Wilmington neighborhoods right. adjacent to the oil refineries? Those right. are the people he evokes. If you talk to mothers who have kids in schools that are breathing bad air, and you want to talk about climate change, which they see as a problem way down the road, it doesn't compare with what their kids are having to breathe every day at school. And that's an example of the people that are being hurt right now by fossil fuel pollution that's beyond other than just climate change. So let's go to the background here of the players in the legislative arena. Citizens Climate Lobby previously had the Climate Solutions Caucus, where every congressional member that wanted to join the caucus had to be paired with a member of the other party than they were in. And so I want to know what the status of that is, because we know lots of the Climate Solutions Caucus members were voted out of office in 2018, and I don't know what happened to them in 2020, but they they lost. And so that, that pairing isn't happening. So talk about what that status is. And I understand from you and background, there is now this conservative climate caucus and of 60 members. So let's talk about those two pieces what each of them, how active each of them is right now, what's motivating each one of them right now. All right, uh, this is Craig Preston and Claudia, thank you for having me on the show today. I uh, am excited in many ways because the landscape is changing. And yet, even though the Climate Solutions Caucus was so powerful to bring people together, as you said, where they would join in pairs and it grew to be 90 members of, the, of Congress, 45 Republicans, 45 Democrats, as they get elected, reelected, uh, changes happen every two years in the House. 
that has shifted at times. So it's still going, it's still active, but it's taken a little bit of a pause now as we see the shifting landscape. Obviously with January 6th, things are still tense in our politics. They are. I'm glad you bring that up. That's got to be a ripple effect that's making and so, climate lobby work, Bob, around. Yeah, and so we are very dedicated to not let climate change fall to the wayside as if it's a partisan issue. And so I work with the conservative caucus to make sure conservative voices are at the table and that we can have conservative solutions battling out with these liberal solutions that to usually lean more regulatory. And we want to lean a little bit more pro-business and use the power of the market and the power of regulation. There, you know, There's certain greenhouse gases that are just meant to be regulated because they're poisonous. But there's other ones that are just good for business, and yet they also have side effects. So, uh, so we want to be careful, but the market can, can make it so we move away from those dangerous greenhouse gases and go to a clean economy. And so I'm, I'm encouraged to see movement that Kevin McCarthy understands, the young people, and even in his own party, in our party, I, I'm a Republican, that they would have a voice here and really want our candidates in the Republican Party to have a strong perspective on this and have it in their campaigns. And so I'm seeing more movement that way that even here in Orange County, Greg Rass, Mike Posey are running for supervisor, and we're having great discussions with them about how we can move climate actions forward and make a difference, regardless of party, that we want good solutions on the table. Mark. I I was just going to say, when Craig mentions the supervisor's office, we should mention that the city of Huntington Beach just passed an endorsement for HR 2307, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And they wrote a beautiful letter explaining why they support it. So we have a city that's got a pretty good reputation for being conservative that's now supporting real effective action in climate change. The landscape, like Craig is saying, is changing. What are, what's the compelling features that draw them that they put in their letter? In terms of endorsing, putting a price on carbon and using market forces, they recognize the history of that and how powerful it is and that it goes across borders, that we have a global problem here. And so if we in our backyard fix the problem and clean up, but other countries don't, we still have a global problem. And China is growing so fast and they've knocked out their plans for a lot of coal-fired power plants, but they're still selling that technology around the world and doing a lot of coal And so for us to move them, I see that's where Kevin McCarthy's office was so helpful to say that's a big game for Republicans. We want to know how can we compete with China and make sure that they obey the rules. If we just set rules and they don't obey them, it doesn't work. But we can have our innovators compete with China and then they start competing on that field. And then the clean economy really takes off because China and America and the rest of the world is now competing fairly on a fair playing field. So that's why a price on carbon, knowing that it's going to go up slowly over the next 10 years, changes that and, and lets all those innovators act. So I was noticing that in some of the organizational updates that it's that motivation you're getting in the legislative arena to support these legislative aspects, these legislative bills is because of foreign governments. Others are going to levy the carbon border adjustment before the U.S. does. So this is sort of like regain some kind of control in that market. Yeah, well said that the European Union is now going for it. They're putting a border adjustment. It's called a CBAM, a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a CBAM. And that's going to start January 1st of 2023, where if 
companies are importing into the European Union and don't have a similar price on carbon, they're going to pay a tariff at the border. And so if we're going to avoid that and not pay taxes into the European Union, we'd rather pay a carbon tax here, give it back to the people so it doesn't operate as a government strengthening tax. It just goes back to the people. And then we see the prices of the polluting greenhouse gas type products go up and we change our buying habits. It protects the poor and protects even the middle class. And then uh, we just go from there. And it doesn't even hurt the, the higher classes because it's such a small part of their income. And so we think it's a win, win, win all the way around. And that's why Huntington Beach, I think, jumped on board that, you know, we've had so much strength in California with cap and trade that that was a leadership position and Canada's done it. But Canada, other provinces have gone with a carbon fee where then that crosses borders better and, and, other, and helps other countries compete and join us in this process. So we're seeing cap and trading regulation not being talked about as much and now putting a price on carbon being a way that this government can make the playing field fair for innovators. So in this political arena, in this dynamic, you developed this conservative climate caucus. And on background, you told me there's 60 members, including Congresswoman Steele in the 48th. And is Congresswoman Young Kim in that caucus at this time? Not yet, no. So you're, what are your plans with those two individuals? Who's talking with you when you're talking with them? Whom are you engaging and what are they saying back to you? All right. Well, I'm really excited about this. If you just Google conservative climate caucus, you'll see that uh, Representative Curtis in Utah is leading this and now opened it up a few weeks ago and over 60 members of the GOP caucus have joined. And I was thrilled to see three in California, David Valadeo up in the Fresno area, Jay Obernolte out in Victor Valley and Big Bear and Michelle Steele. We're hoping Young Kim and others will join as well, but obviously there's there's a process there. But uh, we're no Kevin McCarthy, the caucus leader, is is really supportive of what John Curtis is doing, and they're pushing. So far, kind of easing into it with with activities that would put their foot in the pool a little bit to test the water and move businesses, move people off of carbon, but do it in a way that doesn't jolt the economy too badly. We know there's going to be a need for more. And so we're thrilled that Michelle Steele is joining that battle. We're thinking she has a strong business background. And Young Kim is even better at business, I think. She's uh, really a small business leader in so many ways, and she's on some committees that control that. So we're hoping Young Kim will join soon. Well, with all due respect, the travesties coming down on us that are telling us how intensely the climate is changing, that I would think would be a very clear message that's that affects business the way the climate's condition is now. So I, when I hear a Republican response of we don't want any measures that are going to disrupt business. Well, I would think that these wildfires are, they're like eliminating businesses or they're, I mean, they're, so I, I always have, have to take exception to the, you know that charge. So what is Michelle Steele's office saying to you when you talk to her? And back to your point, Claudia, that's a good point that the price of inaction is becoming much more apparent to all elected leaders. But is that vocabulary creeping in at all when they're in a small room? We know what it sounds like in the big room, but in the small room, are they saying, yeah, we're conceding that point? Uh, They are because their voters are demanding it. And at at the end of this call, we're going to even lay out how your listeners can even just take a part with just two minutes to have a, a bigger part of our democracy and put pressure on our elected officials. 
but that's already happening. They're hearing it from their constituents, especially the younger people. And, and I want to give a little shout out to UC Irvine. It has been a leader in applying all kinds of creative ways to lower the carbon footprint on the campus. And that translates into innovation around the world as they see it being successful here. So thank you, UC Irvine. Um, but we need much more than that. We need it to go global. And so having having just solutions locally doesn't work. It has to be solutions that go global. And that's why a price on carbon is so important. I hear you're saying, does this really happened at the conservative level, I'm seeing them take notice. And uh, our, our most recent call with Jay Rinaldi was very encouraging and that he uh, went to Caltech. He doesn't fight us on the science of this. He's, he understands the science of climate change. And now we have GOP members that really wanna deal with this in a way that they can speak intelligently about it and bring solutions that still match up with conservative values of economic and scientific solutions. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader, and my guests are Citizens Climate Lobby organizers, Mark Tabert and Craig Preston, talking about a rather amazing moment their organization is in as the House of Representatives is considering the House Resolution 2307, and the Senate is considering the infrastructure reconciliation package that are bringing the carbon tax through different, I mean, it's, does the carbon tax appear to the extent you're aware of how this legislation is getting rolled out and developed? Does the carbon tax appear throughout as a system or is it a sort of a subsetting and it's mentioned and defined and folks will see it, will uh, codify that when this becomes an administrative matter? I, you know, I, I believe, Claudia, it's going to be very similar to what we've talked about. It's going to be a price but how does it appear in the ledger? Is it going to be like a system? The carbon tax is something that's going to be integrated throughout legislation and certain sorts of measures and goals and all that, or is it some simply no, one no, no, subsection no. to itself? No. It's going to be a law. It's going to be a law. There'll be a price established. They'll, you know, just like our bill establishes $15 a ton year number one, and every year goes up $10 a ton. That's the house. And bill. we'll see it in different in different kinds of administrative branches, administrative systems throughout where it's going to be. It's not, it's a law that will be in the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce. I mean, the uh, Department of Agriculture, it'll, it'll show up throughout is the way it would look and be operationalized. I don't, I don't see it that way. I think it's simply gonna be a law addressed to oil, coal and gas, the industry, that they're gonna start paying a price based on how much pollution they generate. You see, coal pays the biggest price because it's the dirtiest. The, another thing is that tar sands would die and tar sands would die instantly. They would never drill or go for tar sands anymore if this passes because tar sands is, makes coal look clean. But anyway, coal's the dirtiest of the three and then oil and then gas. So I'm assuming there'll be a price on each one of those things. And they'll be equal. In other words, how much, you, whatever your emissions are in oil will be the same emissions you're allowed with coal for the same price. I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly. Um, Mark, I can jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Claudia, I think you're also mentioning just how it'll show up that there's an infrastructure package. And so that's going to be investing money in our country's infrastructure, but mostly it's spending money. And so the Biden administration is going to get highly, heavily criticized from conservatives like me if they don't 
try to ease the debt and also pay for this stuff. And so uh, we're trying to figure out ways to do that. And so the elected leaders in Congress, they try to come up with things called a pay for of how are we going to pay for this? Yes, we can go spend money. but And so carbon taxation in some ways might be put in there in, either in the reconciliation bill or the infrastructure bill or in other places as a pay for. We in Citizen Climate Lobby have always advocated that the money be given back to the people, that they're going to see the higher prices and we want them to see the higher prices. It's actually the true price of fossil fuel is much higher than what we're paying. And so now we would see the true price as it would slowly go up over time. We would then adjust our spending habits and that that money would we hopefully go back to the people. But if the elected leaders are now going through the sausage making process of how they're going to use that money, they might try to use some of it to help the coal countries. All those people that have built our country so much with cheap energy from coal, we might want to give some of the money to help them transition to this new clean economy. But we're hoping it just goes straight back to the people. We think that's simplest and most transparent. And there'd be other ways to support the coal country. But that's our, our hope. I guess I have a shorthand. I'm wondering if it captures it. The carbon tax is also, it's a tax on externalities. Yes, 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 yes. And That's that, exactly which is. has never been, it's never ever been instituted in the history of our country. Not only has it not been instituted, we've been, we subsidize oil, coal, and gas to make it easier for the drill. <laughs> We're doing exactly the wrong thing. We have for the opposite, time. the subsidizing, yeah, as yeah. opposed to yeah, taxing. So I want to know these are heavy lifts because it, it's a very large reconfiguration of an economic of, of an economy is what it is. And I want to hear more about citizens' climate lobbies alliances to keep a look on this system, this legislative process underway. There's so many things that are going to get, as you talked about the sausage making, there's a lot of deals getting cut and all that. And so I, I'm just, one, I want to look at all the alliances that you're working with that are keeping a close look because we know the deep pockets are going to try to maintain the status quo. That's their job. So I want to know how these alliances that you may be working with that are going to be your best resources to keep tabs and deal with that asymmetry of representation of lobbying activity inside this legislative process? <laughs> That's a big question, Claudia. In a sense, Claudia, we've, we've always done our business in Congress. The reason we have a bill in Congress, even though we're a tiny nonprofit, our budget this year is $7 million compared to the Sierra Club, 150 some million. We're tiny, but we have a bill there because we've made relationships with members of Congress. And when you hear a guy like Whitehouse talk about labor unions and justice groups and people of color, he, he is doing something that we have never specifically named before in our group. Our bottom line is we want to put a price on carbon that's fair and effective, and we want to make sure that people don't get harmed by it, the people, the, you know, the poor and middle class. And those are our bottom lines. And we've built relationships with justice groups. And, and, but, but I don't think we've done the kind of work that the White House has done. I think he's leading on those partnerships more than we are at this point. But I can promise you this, Claudia, when this thing is passed, and I believe it will be, there's a good chance it will be, we're not going to go away. Because 
it's not an, you know, the carbon price is the most effective one thing we can do, but it won't be enough. And we'll always have to guard over it and nurture it and make sure it's done right. In British Columbia, if they don't give all the money back to people on the carbon tax they've had now for 10 years, then they don't pay the secretary of treasury. I don't know if that's his real title, but whoever distributes that money, if he doesn't distribute it as, as he's supposed to, then he doesn't get paid his salary. So that's the kind of thing you have to build into the system to make sure it's done right. 10 years they've accrued those funds? Yeah, 10 years. And they're, not, and they're not going anywhere. Is that, a, is that a, a lesson about what's built in these legislative uh, bills that there is a way of holding accountable for the flow of these funds back to taxpayers? Again, you're, we just don't know the detail yet. But, um, okay, so that's I, part of the sausage, yeah. For sure. <laughs> it's the fat in the sausage that has me keeping up at night, right? It's, <laughs> it, because there's so much money involved, it's just drawing everybody wants to make the money. Mo many will want to make the money. And what's the integrity of the legislation we're left with? Like, And Mark, you're saying it's that's the classic necessary and sufficient test. It's necessary to get the bill, the carbon tax, legislated but it's necessary it's but sufficient is how it's implemented right but remember this when you start giving money to people and that money grows every year is the is the price on fossil fuel rises is there you know their fee rises that means the money to people rises it becomes several thousand dollars to a typical family after about eight years but why is the british columbia funds why are they not moving Oh, they've, their carbon emissions have fallen compared to the rest of Canada and their economy's done better compared to the rest of Canada ever since the thing was in, in, installed. So yeah, it's worked fine. And, so and it's, I think there yes. was a, yeah, I think those funds are moving. It's just that uh, they're going back to the people and it's working. And so he was, Mark was just saying that a way to make sure that those funds are given out every year is the treasurer is penalized personally if he doesn't administer those funds. So that has been a very successful program. Well, if, that's very helpful. Yeah, can so, I go back to your question yes. about, uh, about coalition building? Yes, of course. That uh, That is very important because nothing gets done by ourselves. And so in CCL, we do it with others. We, we uh, go out and we build our, our membership, but then we recognize getting Congress to move is no easy challenge. And there's so many people often discouraged about Congress having such a, a bad record, but we find they are people just like us and they're trying to do good stuff. And so we meet with them often to build those relationships. And then when there's key moments, like right now, we reach out to our coalition partners where we help them along the way, whether they're doing women's marches or they're doing other campaigns that are other issues maybe. And we don't necessarily put the CCL name on a certain partisan issue because we really guard trying to be right in the middle and not get into the partisan fights. But then when we need help, we try to encourage them to join us in this moment where people can do a rapid action and reach out to their members that we've made a tool on our website. And I'd like to give that when you're ready so that people can just know that they can go there. And within three minutes, they can now have a stronger voice to their members of the Senate and uh, on the 11th of August, we will start a House campaign for three weeks, having a stronger voice with our members of the House. I just want listeners to know that we're recording this on August 6th. 
So the alliances you're talking about, let's talk about where some of those headwinds are coming so people can understand some sort of uh, undercurrents and motivations of other parties that we can interpret what they are that make it a little bit more difficult for you to get to your finish line. You were talking about trade associations on background, for instance. I heard Senator Whitehouse in this fireside chat Thursday a week ago, who made a long talk, a long portion of his talk was about trade associations. He pointed out that people like the Chamber of Commerce and the American Petroleum Institute, and these are groups that are now saying we should price carbon. They're coming out at the top levels in the uh, CEO level and saying we should put a price on carbon. So we think that's really great. But his, his point was what they say at the, uh, in the penthouse in Wall Street is different than what the trade associations are doing. And he, he named virtually every trade association you can imagine. I remember the beverage association, the house home builders. These groups might be supporting things on the surface to talk, you know, to green their profile to the public, sort of greenwashing. But the truth is, they're still spending our money to fight what we need to get done. So he said the biggest headwind we face right now in his job as a senator is trade association money working against what he needs to be done. Well, thanks for that. So let's close then with your exhorting listeners. Give them an assignment now, gentlemen. Great. We have a campaign that we recognize the Senate is deciding in these next few months if they're going to go big and put a price on carbon or not. And they are waiting to hear from their people. And so this is not a time just to wait for the next election. This is a time for us to have our voices lifted up. And we want Republicans and Democratic elected leaders to hear from the people that putting a price on carbon, we have their back on this, they can go big and support this. Right now, the Democrats have more power up in the Senate area, but uh, we know that the Republicans are very involved in the background and, uh, and moving things forward. Last December, at the last moment, three important climate bills were put into a big end of year package. And so we recognize that that's a lot of ways how these things get done, but they need to hear from the people. And so I'm going to give you a website and hopefully you'll take a few minutes and go there and it'll guide you to a tool that you'll just send it two emails, one to each of your senators, and then it gives you a chance to call them if you want to call them, because that's a very powerful way to do this as well. We're getting those touch points so they know they're keeping track. Their staff are waiting to check the box of how many calls are we getting each week on putting a price on carbon and going big to put it in this reconciliation package. So the website is cclusa.org forward slash Senate. That'll take you to our site with those tools, cclusa.org forward slash Senate. You put in your name and your phone number and your address, that'll guide it and, and pull up your senators. You can specialize the message if you want, because that makes it even more powerful. But if you don't have interest in that, you can just click the button. It'll send the emails and they uh, often the senators will respond to you and say thank you for your outreach. And we want to we've noted your opinion. And this is how we can move our senators now. So after that's over, uh, we're going to have three weeks doing the same thing, but at the House. And so if your listeners know that citizensclimatelobby.org is where to learn anything about this, uh, what's going on in Congress right now. We would love to have more people tune in, citizensclimatelobby.org. Let me just say what, to add to what Craig said, 
we're trying to be the number one topic in every Senate and every House office for the next four weeks. In other words, we want every senator, we want every House representative member to look, you know, to report their staff to say, you know, everybody's calling about this carbon price stuff. You Mark, know? I'm going to, Mark, it's called trending, just so you want to be hip sounding. What's it called? You wanna, do you want to be trending in Congress? Yes. Okay. And so the Craig gave us the forward slash Senate. So three weeks following that, a three week stretch where it's going to be like a forward slash house or what's that look like that? It is. It's going to be cclusa.org forward slash house. Okay. That's what I thought it'd be. So there's a lot to be said of the, the messy partisan dynamic that I can bet my my life savings on are going to happen. So I'm just going to let listeners know that I know that's an element of where, where things are going on, but it'll be really an interesting political experiment to see what happens with the carbon tax, with what is raging now. We don't even have a full-blown hurricane season here. That'll affect other states more than maybe some of the wildfires, but with more heat waves and other extreme environmental conditions that uh, it'll be interesting to see if that can be a much larger message than partisan branding. I wish actually CCNL all the luck in mastery of a big lift coming up in this legislative session. Good luck, guys. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you two for your time today. My guests were Mark Tabert and Craig Preston, both Citizens Climate Lobby organizers here in Orange County, Mark in Newport, Craig in Costa Mesa. Thanks again, gentlemen. You're welcome. Thank you. We'll be right back with Gloria Alvarado, Executive Director of the Orange County Federation of Labor. back to the show. My next guest is Gloria Alvarado, the personification of grassroots involvement at the local and national levels. She is the Orange County Labor Federation Executive Director, representing 93 locals in Orange County. In that capacity, she works in the same neighborhoods she grew up in. This is precisely the perspective I want in taking stock of the passing of the president of the AF of L, CIO, Richard Trumka. The Civic Leadership Institute that she's involved with trains community leaders and residents on how government works and prepares them to join boards, commissions, and other bodies where they can make a difference. Civics, folks, the new plastics. Remember that line in the graduate? Civics, that's the future, folks. Gloria Alvarado recruits, runs, and manages the institute Already she's trained dozens of community members on how to become more active in their local communities and in politics. A resident of Santa Ana Gloria worked for over 20 years in the parks and recreation department for the city of Santa Ana and attended Cal State University at Fullerton. At her job, Gloria was an active member and leader of the Service Employees International Union Local 721. 
Gloria comes to us today from Orange. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Gloria Aldorado. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to share a little bit about a great leader from a grassroots perspective, thinking and just highlighting a lot of the work that has been able to be done and that will continue because of his leadership and his vision. Well, thank you. And we are taping this on August 7th. So we are going to take apart the arc of his career and the legacy, including his early organizing. He worked in the Southwest Pennsylvania area coal mines. He was a graduate of Penn State and went on to law school in Villanova three years after he finished college. He was a mine worker's staff attorney. And in 1982, he headed the Mine Workers Union. So Gloria Alvarado, what themes pop out at you about his capacity and his influence? One of the biggest things is during the miners' strike for nine months, he was able to keep the brotherhood and the sisterhood together. That showed his capacity as a leader, bringing solidarity. You know, it's very hard for workers when they strike because it puts a toll on their family life and definitely on their communities as well. And this is happening in a miners' town. So you know that everything revolves about the miners' livelihood. So all the economy, all the jobs surrounding it were affected because of this. And it was because of his vision and because of his tenacity as a leader to keep everybody strong, making sure that every family was being taken care of, that the strike showcased at a national level the power of the workers. And, you know, successfully being able to lead at that level just showcases the family and the strength of unionism. So there was a really interesting week that the 40-year anniversary of the path-breaking, the path-making, President Reagan's air traffic controller strike-busting, and that 40th anniversary is the same week that Mr. Trumpka died. That's a rather poignant convergence, isn't it? It is indeed, you know, and I, I, I laugh about it because one of the promises that was made when the leadership, right, at the highest level of authority, side with the companies and did not support the workers, the promise was we will organize, we will unite, and we will come out stronger. And that's exactly what we have been doing, uh, uplifting the voices. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the civic engagement program, because this is what it's all about. It's about having the working class being involved at every single level so that we can influence our own lives. When we talk about unions, people think about unions as an outside entity, but it's not. Unions mean workers. We're talking about the worker, the individual that one person that has a family and they have to take care of them and we have to be providing for, and it means community. This is why it's so important, you know, that you mentioned this challenge and we took it as a challenge and we took it as a life lesson to be prepared and become stronger and become involved because that's what makes a difference. So it seems like Mr. Trumka gave the former president the benefit of the doubt for quite a few years, for at least three years. And then, and then he jumped off. He jumped off the wagon there, that the, jumped off that bus. And so I want to know what, 
what was it like for you with your, you know, your 70,000 foot level, your three foot level perspective of what that, that was a bit of a train wreck that he stayed on, rode that bull that long, wasn't it? It was. Let me tell you that for all of us, 2016 was very challenging. 2018 became uh, a better year uh, in perspective when you talk about uh, politics. But 2016 was devastating for all of us because we knew we were going to have a challenge. And as workers, as as, um, an individual that has to work to, to be able to provide, it was a challenge when we saw our national leader uh, open up and say, let's talk, open up and say, you know, we have to give this guy uh, a chance to talk to us. There were a lot of promises made and not many promises kept. And I think that's why, you know, us as members, us as leaders challenged that question, especially when it became an issue for immigrants. It's been very challenging because we have multiple issues throughout the labor system, but, you know, women's rights, civil rights, and immigrant rights, and um, the perspective of a better life and a better economy for all was somewhat challenged and kind of flushed down the toilet because of the administration and the, the style of the administration. But I think having the leader willing and, and hoping to have conversations, real conversations, to see we were able to influence and move things, um, also challenge us and it challenged our solidarity. But I can tell you that it was done from a perspective of, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but it's, it's restorative practices. I okay. think it was done with that, with that mentality. It was done, you know, to be able to solve an issue, we have to be restorative. And the first thing that we need to do is listen and listen to the plan. We might not agree with it. We might not like it, but we need to know it. And that's what it was all about. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Gloria Alvarado. She's the Orange County Labor Federation Executive Director. We're looking at the legacy of President of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trumka, who passed this August 5th. And so I'm just wondering, I mean, everybody you're working with, you included, you already had a huge, exhausting list of things to do. And then November 2016 rolls around and appointments are made in the cabinet. So I don't know what kind of gym builds up the muscle to say, well, we're depleted, but we're going to find some muscle left to, to push back on what will become what we noticed was pretty bad faith negotiation. Mm-hmm. And it was the muscle of the people. I kid you not. We, I, I have to say, I'm proud to say that I'm an organizer and that's what becomes the stronger and the better uh, muscle of the people. Um, we don't just represent workers. We represent their families and their communities. So if you have an informed individual who is willing to stand up with others to push back against any kind of attack, any kind of change that will diminish the power or the livelihood, of an individual, then you are building that muscle. And I think that that has always been our goal to build the muscle, to create, you know, to create that, that strength that pulls people together. And, you know, that has always been 
one of the prevailing forces um, always. If you think about the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, every single aspect of people becoming stronger had to do with workers standing against or for something that will make a difference in the lives of other workers. So, you know, that is the muscle that we count on. So this makes me want to ask, since infrastructure is a vocabulary that's being tinkered with, and it's a kind of a Rorschach drawing, depending on who's talking about infrastructure, is labor working hard at looking at that definition with particular labor needs involved, with both tangible and intangible kinds of dividends? Yes, as a matter of fact, build back better with unions <laughs> has become uh, the new voice of workers throughout because we know that if we create jobs and we create jobs that have respect, dignity, safety, and good salaries, that will uplift the lives of others and it will uplift the, uh, the lives or, uh, of our nation. We have been challenged day in and day out. This pandemic that we just went through taught us that the only way for us to survive and be able to move the economy forward is to be creative in what we do. Just to give you an example, you know, yes. we call heroes those who remain at work. So nurses, doctors, pharmacists, grocery workers, janitors, all of those people became the heroes of the 2020 pandemic and still are heroes as we continue with 2021. But this is what we do. We have the ability to build back better because we're united. Because when we see infrastructure, that means jobs. That means our families who are going through hardship or who are looking at, you know, the new era, um, you know, saving our environment and what have you. This new deal, this new idea of Build Back Better, it's going to give us the, the opportunity to have good jobs and still remain strong as we move forward. I guess one other question that I'm sort of broadsiding with you, but I, I really... I mean this with all sincerity is, does the union provide a social media platform that can start to compete effectively with mis and disinformation campaigns on other media platforms? You know, I think that's one of the big challenges and just, just to give you a perspective, right? We are a national and international as part of the AFL-CIO and we have local union bodies representing the AFL throughout our nation. And to answer your question, I want to say no. We haven't become that, I don't know, um, savvy, uh, but we need it. We have a few sources of information, but one of the biggest things that we believe in is that, you know, before you can talk to the world, you need to talk to your own members. So our member-to-member -member communication is very strong. And we believe that by doing this, by talking to our own members, we can convey the message throughout. Um, I think in the new era, in the new world, we need the communication perspective and we totally need to work on developing that infrastructure that can challenge and 
inform from a perspective of labor, from a perspective of a working class individual, and that can have open conversations and answer questions as we move forward. Well, Gloria, it seems like the Civic Leadership Institute has a great sort of intergenerational opportunity. There's the social media savvy, perhaps we'll say younger personnel and the older generation, the older cohorts who know all about what civic leadership and civic engagement is. That, that's like they can respect and honor each other's strengths and they all have this tremendous feedback loop working to get a lot done. Oh yes, indeed. Uh, I'm, I come from, and I'm, I, I will not tell you my age, but I'm a grandmother of 16. And I can tell you, we are looking and seeking to work with this new amazing workforce that is developing these new ideas of communication and that is uplifting their talents, right? Um, by connecting us to the to a wider world. So, um, you know, social media has become one of the biggest tools that we use from just having a report done, but I'll actually uh, posting our fights on social media and having people following all the work that we do. I think that has been one of the biggest improvements and connections that we have with the communications forces throughout the world. So, and my last question, I have many, but I, this is a very brief interview. I'm appreciating the time you're giving us today that I'd like to know, do you have any assignments you'd like to give our listeners? I mean, we know there's a recall coming up starting September 4th, ending September 14th. I'll be mentioning that every other conversation I have. But I, I don't know if you have some assignments for the listeners in conclusion. <laughs> yes, indeed. One of the biggest assignments is please think about how this is affecting our livelihood. And I'm going to talk from my own perspective. This governor has been able to um, educate and support the working class to the highest level. Let me just share with you a few of these issues. And so this is the task for everyone, get informed. Do not believe what's happening only on social media. Know your benefits. First of all, closing the state was a good idea because we are safe. We are alive and we're continuing. Do we have issues still, health issues? Yes, the numbers are still growing. So we need to make sure that we're protecting ourselves and our families. But one of the biggest things that we saw is that immediately uh, money was allocated for the residents of California. Uh, immediately there was a mask mandate. Immediately there were additional sick days to be able to cover for those that didn't have enough sick days cover if they were sick. And then it was mandated that we reported the cases so that we could keep our families safe. Those things alone can move things forward. And this is why we were able to keep our economy alive. California being the fifth economy of the world is important in everything that we do. And this governor, regardless of where you are, please look at what he did to keep the economy of California moving forward. This is very important. So my task to the listeners is for them to get informed, not to forget that every vote counts. So we need for them to actually vote. Ballots are gonna be dropping August 16th. So you will get a ballot at your home because we're voting by mail. We need you to please make sure that you vote and that you uh, send your ballots immediately. 
do not hesitate. Do not wait. Everybody's going to be, um, you know, mailing in their votes. And we're going to make sure that everybody is out there passing the word and letting others know that this is a very important election uh, because this is what it becomes. You know, we we're going to have the opportunity to have and vote for the next governor in a year and a half. And why not? Let's just keep what we have right now. Keep keep the economy strong. Let's keep us moving forward. Vaccines are available. Again, it's your choice. But if you need to have more information, the information is available as well. So help us. As you become civically uh, engaged, you will understand and you will learn um, your rights, your privileges, and also the work that you can do to make a difference within your own community. And that's what it's all about. Well, I'm going to take that. That's your assignment for listeners. I'm sure you have other ones, but in the interest of time, we'll leave it at that. That is kind of a tall order to make sure we get everybody to vote. Everybody needs to vote. So thank you so much, Ms. Alvarado, for your time on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. I really appreciate your invitation. And I hope this is not the one and only time. I hope you continue as we all stand together and make difference in our lives. Thank you. Well, you, you have an open invitation to return. My guest was Gloria Alvarado, Orange County Labor Federation Executive Director, talking about the legacy of Richard Trumka sending us on our way with some new assignments after his passing. They learned in turn. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, more updates with Irvine Watchdog, for starters. Remember, listeners, to check www.ocgov.com forward slash redistricting for the last two chances to participate in the Board of Supervisors redistricting workshops. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. We work in class. Watch and learn your craft from those.